0: Welcome to another episode of Hospital Ball. This week's guest is former manager Terry Dolan. Terry had a long career in football as a player, coach, manager, consultant, and referees assessor. He joined York City in the year 2000 when the club were in danger of a double dip relegation. Terry steered the club away from the bottom, but over the course of his three year spell, he was battling against issues off the pitch. Here, Terry speaks exclusively about his time at Bootham Crescent. This episode is sponsored by Simon Malone, a local painter and decorator who offers a clean, tidy and professional approach to interior and exterior decorating. Simon is a huge York City supporter and his work details can be found on Instagram as well as the Trusted Traders Age UK directory. But for now, here is a life in football with Terry Dolan.
1: So Terry, f- thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast, but also allowing us to sort of record it in, in the Dolan residence here and, and for, for the cup of tea that you've uh, very kindly made me. I have to say, when I, when I originally planned this out, I was only going to sort of touch upon your playing career, but I was so fascinated with it and the experiences that you had in your playing days. For example, starting your career at Bradford Park Avenue, and then I think after only one season, you, you very nearly signed for Arsenal.
2: Yeah, it was my second Well, i have just completed two years at Bradford Park Avenue and unfortunately the club were demoted out of the football league. It was the third year running where they had to apply for re-election and on this occasion they missed out and Cambridge came in and took over. So it was a bit of a conundrum as to what, what do we do next. In fact, I was on holiday at the time when the meeting down at the football league happened with Graham Carr, whose son is Alan, Alan Carr, a yeah. comedian, and we were in Newquay and halfway through our two weeks holiday we were called back because they had to decide whether all the players were going to remain as full-time professionals the, the Saturday night before we left would you believe we watched in, in the hotel where we were we watched live Dave D Dozy Beacon and Teach. <laughs> so that that was the first sort of question about what do we do next at Braffa Park Avenue so we came back and the club decided that they were going to keep everybody as professionals Uh, and three weeks later I went to Arsenal and they set me up in digs at that time in club at Arsenal they had a hostel for all the apprentices and trialists but unfortunately the hostel was full so they put me in digs on my own in, in Enfield and it was pre-season so we were training morning and afternoon and I used to leave the digs at half past seven in the morning and get back at half past seven at night so basically I I realised it, it was too far for me to travel I, mean, I wasn't travelling every day obviously mm. but I just got homesick and I yeah. decided I'm coming home still had enough confidence to realise that I might get another club but Bertie Mee was the manager at the time, Don Howe was the coach, they got me a 10-year passport to go on pre-season tour with them and I have to say it's probably the biggest mistake I made in my playing career anyway, not sticking mm-hmm. it out, I should have stuck it out because that season Arsenal did the double. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Could have been some good, good win bonuses in there for you. Um, I mean, you remained in Yorkshire by signing for Huddersfield in 1970. And again, some fantastic sort of facts I came across when I was researching. Um, you played in all four divisions for Huddersfield and played at every single ground in the Football League. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there are too many players
2: that have done that in their playing careers. But yeah, i when, when Arsenal, when I decided not to go to Arsenal, I came back and played for two months in the Northern Premier League with Brafford Park Avenue and then Huddersfield came in for me and they paid a princely sum of £2,500 which kept Park Avenue going for a couple of months mm. financially. It took me quite a while to settle in at Huddersfield because I'd gone from the Northern Premier League to the First Division because Huddersfield had just got promoted. But, you know, I, I, I managed to settle in pretty well and uh, had six years there, basically. Mm.
1: What, what was the difference like with going up to Division 1? Was it the kind of speed of thought? Was it the sort of pace well, of it, the game?
2: It, it, it was more physical than anything because, you know, I wasn't the strongest player. Uh, they, they put me on special weights training, etc. So, for the first six months, I was doing that to build myself up everything else i think i could cope with because i played at center back at bradford park avenue for the first time in my career as a youngster i was a what you call an inside forward Uh, but park avenue saw something in me and i played at center half but i wasn't a physical type of Mm. player and i think Uddersfield town saw that so they, they wanted me to get stronger so i did quite a bit of training on my own without the rest of the
1: squad just to get stronger right and I'd imagine that, you know, one of your highlights of your time at Leeds Road would have been when you scored in a 4-2 win against West Ham in the FA Cup fifth round, whose side included likes of Jeff Hurst, Bobby Moore, Harry Redknapp, Trevor Brookin. And I think Huddersfield was second bottom at the time and 27,000 people there. That must have been a really special game to play in and scoring.
2: Well, I mean, that particular time I got into the team, Jimmy McGill had been sold to Hull City and he was a midfield player. So I took his place, and that was my first game as a midfield player. And in the February of that year, I played against Best and Charlton at Old Trafford. A few weeks later, we played West Ham in the fifth round of the FA Cup. We beat them 4-2, and I scored one of the goals. And as you say, uh, Bobby Moore was playing, Jeff Hurst. And then, would you believe, in the sixth round of the FA Cup, we played Birmingham at Birmingham.
1: I don't know exactly what you're going to say here, I've got it <laughs> written down, but I'll allow you to tell a, tell a story.
2: <laughs> we played Birmingham at Birmingham. We were in the first division at the time. Birmingham were the second division. Birmingham's front three that day was Bob Hatton, Bob Latchford and Trevor Francis. And our goalkeeper was carried off on a stretcher with about five minute, five minutes of the first half still to go. And as in people probably don't realise in those days, you didn't have a substitute goalkeeper. If a goalkeeper got injured, one of the outfield players took his place. And I was the only one daft enough to volunteer. Uh, So I ended up going in goal. But we were 1-0 down at the time. We ended up losing 2-1. And it was something where, well, it's something I'll never forget. And had we won that game, we'd have played Leeds United in the semi-final.
1: Wow! <laughs> and and I looked as well that there was fifty-two thousand, I think, at St Andrews out and yeah. That's a massive yeah. crowd to be goal in front of. I imagine very, very intimidating for someone who's yeah. who's not a keeper. I mean, were, were you you say you were daft enough to sort of offer to go in goal? But had you, had you done any training? Were you ever messing about in training? Well,
2: Going back to Bradford Park Avenue, I actually played in goal for them one Saturday at Newport when our goalkeeper was carried off. And I think because I was tall, people just said, oh, yeah, well, you're, you're tall enough to go in and goal. And so I played, I played in goal at Newport. We, we lost 5-1, but it was 4-0 when I went in. So I also, would you believe, at Huddersfield Town, played in goal in a reserve game when Bobby Charlton was player manager of Preston. He actually played in this game, and they got a penalty. And he took the penalty, and I'm thinking, oh, dear, what am I going to do here? And I got myself ready, and I'm thinking, well, I'm just going to dive one way and hope he hits it that way. And I dived one way and he miskicked it into the other corner.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad about that story. Obviously, given Bobby Charlton's passed away this week, hasn't he? uh, Yeah, it's a nice story about him. Exactly, yes. And I mean,
2: having got to know him later in my career and played against him, obviously for Man United, he was a gentleman.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and I think that's come across in the whole kind of football community, hasn't it, in the past week. It's been really nice. I was at York City yesterday and We've got quite a a young sort of crowd behind the goal, and they're all singing his name. There's only one Bobby Charlton, so for you know, for them to sort of pick up on 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 kind of what he represents is is fantastic. Another sort of interesting fact from your career, Terry, is that you've met quite a lot of royalty and political figures as well. I believe.
2: Yes, uh, I was fortunate when I was at Huddersfield Town to meet the Prime Minister at the time, Harold Wilson, who was a big Huddersfield Town fan. And he came to one of the games, so I had to introduce him to all the team before the kickoff. And then, on, the, on a more negative side, I had to introduce everybody when I was manager of Bradford City after the two years after the fire when the stadium mm-hmm. was rebuilt, and I met Maggie Thatcher. So right. I had the uh, good fortune to meet two Prime Ministers, one Labour Prime Minister and one Conservative Prime Minister.
1: Where were your political sort of stances at that time? Did that make it one <laughs> of them quite awkward? Or? No, I didn't have any political tendencies in those days. Fair enough, good job. And, and whilst you are at Rochdale as well, you, you were you were in the Sunday Times Quotes of the Year, I believe. Yeah, that was interesting.
2: When I, I wasn't aware of it. But that season, the end of my playing career, I was given a free transfer. And they, they'd given most of the older players free transfers that particular season and I'd been talking to one of the journalists and I didn't realise that I'd said it, but anyway, it turned up in the Sunday Times Quotes of the Year. And the quote was, when you're given a free transfer from Rochdale, you have to seriously consider your future. <laughs> <laughs> and, you, and you also met the Queen. Yeah, again, I was very, very fortunate to meet the Queen In that was when I was at Hull City, managing Hull City, 1993. And she came to open a school in Hull, which was just down the corner from Boothery Park. And it was Sir Francis Askew school. And we used to have some of our players go and do coaching there. So they invited some of the players and they invited me. Anyway, the guy who was organising it all said to me, Terry, he said, uh, while the Queen's walking around and she, she'll be watching the kids practising, she said, he said she may come up and ask you a question or say something to you. And he said, just make sure when you answer, you finish it with mum. So I'm thinking, she's not going to come and ask me anything. She's got more (laughs) important things to do. So anyway, she's watching the children play. And she did come up to me. And she said, she was obviously told who I was. She said, Terry, she said, it's great to see the boys and girls playing football. She said, but the girls, when they head the ball, doesn't it hurt them? (laughs) And I said to her, not the girls in Hull, Mum.
1: Some of that time at, at, at Huddersfield as well was spent under ex-York City manager Tom Johnson. I, I read somewhere that he, he wouldn't play you because he didn't like your beard. I mean, I, I noticed you're well, sporting a nice beard well, today, Terry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, Bobby Collins took over from uh, Ian Greaves while I was playing there, the ex leeds United player. And I'll just tell you a little story about Bobby. We had a try a, a practice match on a Thursday morning, and I wasn't in the first team at the time. I was in the reserves, and he always had a reserve a, a practice match between the reserves and the first team. So I'm playing in this game, and the ball just bounced up about chest high, and I went. I put my foot up to try and get the ball, missed the ball, and caught the opponent, one of the first team players, on the chest. It just marked his chest, but it wasn't anything bad, and it wasn't deliberate or anything mm. like that. Anyway, at the end of the training session, Bobby Collins shouted me over, he says, Terry, just want a word with you. And I'm thinking, oh, bloody hell, what's what's he going to say to me now? He said, Terry, that tackle was brilliant. You're in the team on Saturday. (laughs) (laughs) So I got back into the team, into the first team and played. I was probably an ever-present for the following three seasons and I was captain as well, so... Uh, but that's, then Tom Johnson took over from Bobby because we weren't getting any better as a team. Tom was a Dower Scott who, as you say, played, was at York City for a spell. And we were due to play Chesterfield away in a pre-season game. This was 1976. And he said, Terry, I don't like beards. I want you to shave it off he says and if you don't you won't play on saturday and i'm thinking he's just having a bit of a laugh here so we turned up on the saturday got on the coach never said anything on the coach got off the coach into the dressing room he named 16 players but didn't name me and i was the 17th and i just had to sit and watch and he said you didn't shave your beard off when i asked you to (laughs) Three, three days later I was transferred to Bradford City. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Which, you know, turned out to be a good move for you, didn't it? I mean, I think you support Bradford City, or you did as a, as a, as a youngster. Brad- yeah,
2: I was a Bradford City supporter right from being four or five years old. My granddad used to go with my dad, then my dad was playing. We, well, I was there from, as I say, five to fifteen, and then I became an associate schoolboy mm-hmm. in Bradford City before I went to Park Avenue.
1: Yeah, and it must have been a real special moment for you to, to kind of go back to Bradford City and, and like you say, if your grander took you and club you supported and you'd go on to become captain as well. And, and also I sort of stumbled across my, in my research some more sort of cup success that you had in your career and you played a key role in, in beating Liverpool in the League Cup in 1980. A shot, shot by you was parried by Ray Clements that uh, Bobby Campbell followed up and also, I sort of looked at the team lineups See, so You did really well to get through 90 minutes in that midfield against Graham Souness and Jimmy Case, didn't you? Exactly,
2: yes. I mean, the only player who was a regular in the Liverpool team who didn't play that night, because it was the second round and it was two-legged and we were at home in the first leg. And the only player who didn't play was Kenny Dalglish. And I was looking in the, in the papers a while ago, And it was talking about Kenny Dalgleish when he first signed for Liverpool from Celtic. He played 180 games consecutively. And his first game he missed was against us in the Cup. Right. So we beat them 1-0 at home. And that was by far the best game I've ever played in for Bradford City. But unfortunately, in the second leg the following week, Dalgleish was fit, played... Scored two and we lost four 0 <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never forget that.
1: Yeah, but I imagine the, the atmosphere at Valley Parade in the in the first leg like, must have been oh, amazing, and for you to come out on top as yeah, well—it
2: was brilliant, yeah.
1: You also had a really good record as a penalty taker as well, which I wasn't aware of until I was researching for this interview. You scored 18 in a row until Dave Besson stopped you. And to be fair to Dave Besson, he obviously saved the penalty in an FA Cup final as well. So so probably a good one to, to, to miss one against.
2: Yes, and I've always said to people since, if you are taking a penalty, have it in your mind what you want to do, which way you're going to go, side foot it or drive it. And that was the first one I'd taken that I'd changed my mind. I always put it to the goalkeepers left, and I always put it low if I could. And for some reason, and I, I still don't know why, I changed my mind and went to the other side, and he saved it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh well. And and then you know, Bradford City obviously was a was a club you went on to coach, you went on to manage. And, and I think you're a coach, and, and I imagine this will be one of your, your worst days in, in, in football. We've talked a lot about your highs already, but you are a coach when, when the Bradford fire happened, and I, and I believe you, your mum was in the, in the stand as well. It must have been a, a real frightening experience for you, and obviously 56 people died. No, no one should ever go to football and, and not come home. That must have been an awful day. Yes,
2: that, that was the worst of the worst. Um, I'd just gone back to Bradford City as youth team coach, I'd been working at Bradford Council when I finished playing at Rochdale. And we played in the morning and we came back and the, the game against Lincoln in the afternoon was, was due to be a celebration because the first team had won the division that season and they were getting presented with the fourth division trophy. So the game as a whole was a bit of a non-event. It was what was happening before the game that got everybody excited. It was blowing a gale, it was a hard bumpy pitch and there weren't that much or there wasn't that much football played in in the sort of first half. Anyway there's about two minutes to go and myself and the two guys who helped me with the youth team we decided we were going to leave our seats and go up to the tea room to get a cup of coffee or a cup of tea at half time and just as we left our seats to, we were sort of in to the right of the stand and then the dressing rooms were further to the right. And all of a sudden you felt this wind blowing down the length of the stand. And we started walking up to the back, and then the wind was followed by smoke, and then obviously fire. And it was just absolute chaos. So people, the the people's first thoughts that were, you know, the main supporters who were sat in the stand, was to run up to the back and get out from where they'd come in. But because it was half-time, or near half-time, all the turnstiles were closed Mm, so anybody who was then running up to the back had to turn around and try and run to the front and because i'd not been at the club until a couple of months before my mum and dad had not been to any games that season but they came to this one because it was a Mm, big celebration and i didn't realize until afterwards when they had a roll call and everybody was counted for that my mum and dad had been thrown over the wall at the front of the stand to get onto the pitch because that was the safest place to be and the number of other people that were there was well it was incredible so we we ran out at the we were very lucky to get out of it and then we ran up to up the road up to the top of manningham and we're just looking down and all you could see was the fire and the smoke and everybody well just everybody was just running and trying to get out of the way And it wasn't until we had a roll call, everybody then got up to the top, there was a pub called the Bellevue, so we had a a roll call in there. And once everybody was accounted for, we went back down to the ground to Trevor, Trevor Cherry was the manager, Terry Oroff was assistant manager, and I was youth team coach. So we went into Trevor's office, and his his office was in the corner, just attached to the main stand where it, it was all happening. And we looked down, and everything had obviously calmed down. And at the bottom of it, where all the terracing was, and then the wall before the pitch, all you could see was bodies. Mm. And it was absolutely frightening, mm. absolutely frightening. And then, because it was the end of the season, for the next six weeks or so, we spent most of our time visiting the injured in hospitals. It was, yeah. it was well, it was just
1: unbelievable. Yeah, horrendous, as someone as a, as a football fan but it was before my time I've always known about the Bradford fire but I think until I like I say, preparing for this this interview I didn't realise how many people had died and, and how, how actually horrific it was it, it sounds you know absolutely harrowing your time at Bradford City you went on to become a manager for Bradford again that must have been a real proud moment for you in in, in your life given that given that you know you'd supported them as a boy like you mentioned and you played for them and, and been a coach and then becoming a manager must be a real massive achievement for you. Your first managerial post, obviously the best place for you to have it.
2: Well, if you think about it logically, I supported Bradford City from being five years old. I was lucky enough to play for Bradford City, to then go back as youth team coach initially, but then also have the opportunity to manage them. Well, it's what dreams are made of. Yeah. And 55 years I had sort of in professional football, so to achieve playing for your, your favourite team, to achieve managing your favourite team, but not just your favourite team, the place where you were born and the place where you live for 40 years. Mm. Not many people can, uh, have had the fortune to do that, have they?
1: They haven't, and, and to have a massive success of it as well. I mean, your time at Bradford City, I think your remit initially going in there was to keep them up. You won seven out of the last 10 games. Your first full season in charge, you, you came fourth, and uh, just fell short in the playoffs. But I think you had a couple of players, key players injured then, and you lost a few players the, ne- the next season. John Hendry and uh, Stuart McCall, who were obviously big players, didn't do as well, but but still beat Spurs in the FA Cup three weeks before you were sacked. I mean, yeah. that's a hell of a record, really, when you look back. It's a short period of time, isn't it? But but you, you, you packed a lot in. And actually, in fact, I read a, a really recent article, I think this was because... Mark Hughes has just lost his job. They did the most successful managers for Bradford City and I think your win percentage of 45.54% is the fourth highest of all Bradford managers ever.
2: Uh, I've not seen that, but I'll tell you a little bit about how I got the job at Bradford City. Trevor Cherry was the manager, Terry Arath assistant manager, and I was youth team coach. Terry Arath went to Swansea as manager, so I moved up to assistant manager. And Trevor had met Stan Turnant, I went in his time at Leeds. So he brought Stan in as youth team coach. Then Trevor got sacked because we were down at the bottom of the league. I wasn't even under contract, but I was the next one in line, apart from somebody else who they wanted. And we had a chairman called Stafford Eggingbotham who knew me from being sort of 15 years old when I was there as an associate schoolboy. And he was all for me getting the job. But they had other directors who, I think, had different ideas. And I know that one of them, who was the vice chairman, he always felt that Terry Arath had done the work that Trevor Cherry had been mm. lauded for. So it was fairly clear that he wanted Terry Arath to come back, but as as he wanted too much compensation. Anyway, I was caretaker manager now. Then for five or six games, we didn't lose any of them. And eventually they decided that, They had to give me the job because I'd done a reasonable job up until then. After the fourth interview that I had, it was me and and A&Other for the job. And I had no idea who the A&Other was until I turned up for my fourth interview. The A&Other had just finished his interview and he was coming out of the boardroom. And when I saw who it was, I'm thinking, well, that's it. There's no chance of me getting the job. Then one of the directors came out and he said, Terry, we're not going to interview you now. And I thought, oh, well, that's it. The bubbles are it to A Another was Martin O'Neill. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when they said, we're not giving you the job, Terry, uh, we're not uh, interviewing you, Terry, we're going to give you the job. And I went, oh, thank God for that. So they opened a bottle of champagne. There were six of them round a big oval table in the boardroom. And I was at one end, and Jack Todoff, who was the vice chairman, who wanted Terry off back, he was at the far end and he stood up and he walked around the oval table and he came up to me and he said, right Terry, he said, uh, I'm telling you to your face before anybody tells you behind my back. I didn't want you to have the job. <laughs>
1: Confidence boost. So
2: I said, okay, thanks Jack. Thanks for letting me know And I said. I'll prove you wrong. Anyway, we, we did reasonably well. We just missed out in the playoffs the following season. But as I feared the next person to come back when they sacked
1: me was Terry
2: They brought Terry
1: yeah. off the back. So you always knew that that was sort of in the back of your mind. Yes. You, you went on to manage um, Rochdale for two years where again, you, you know, Cup success seems to sort of follow you around in your career and you got them to the FA Cup fifth round. I think you, you lost at Crystal Palace but then Hull City came calling and they had to pay some compensation for you. You managed over 300 games for them but it was all sort of amongst the backdrop of severe financial issues, but you, you signed Alan Fettis, obviously a player who would become really familiar to York City fans. How, how did you come across Alan in the first place?
2: Well, Jeff Lee, was my assistant, he knew some of Alan's relatives, and they were doing some scouting in Ireland, and they said, you need to have a look at this goalkeeper. So we brought him across, and it, as I say, it was his brother who was the scout out there, and straight away we thought, well, this is too good to be true. And we signed in from Ards.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of your best signings, would you say? I think so,
2: yes. Yeah, but, yeah. But, but after that, we followed that up with Roy Carroll, if you remember. Yes, yeah, yeah. Who came and we got in for nothing. But he came through the same procedure of right. scouts in
1: Ireland. Yeah. It's a good scouting network to say that the, the club were obviously financially struggling oh, yeah. as well. You even played him up front. <laughs> Alan Fettis, so he, he, he's... Hey, not, one, not once, but twice. Not once, but twice, yes. And <laughs> so I think the first one was against Oxford, who were managed by Dennis Smith, Dennis, of course, who was yeah. in charge of York City. And he said it was one of his worst days in yes. football seeing a, a goalkeeper score against him. So what made, I, I presume it was because you were struggling for players, wasn't it, that Alan was, was put on the bench, wasn't he, I think, initially? He, he was
2: on the bench for the first game against against Oxford, yes, because our strikers were all injured and we didn't have any
1: youngsters good enough.
2: But then last game of the season, we played at Blackpool. And again, with no strikers available.
1: And Sam Allardyce is Blackpool. Sam think, Allardyce wasn't it, was so manager. Known for Phil. a
2: defensive la- yeah. Um, you know, style. Yeah, Sam was manager and Phil Brown was his assistant. And they needed to win the game to get promoted. And we beat them 1 0 and Allen scored the goal. <laughs> And Sam, I I
1: won't tell you what he said to me after the game. (laughs) (laughs) We'll keep it clean. I mean, another player you signed as well was Dean Windass. I mean, without finding these sort of hidden gems and selling them for big money, I guess Hull City could could quite easily have gone under.
2: Well, if you think of it at the time, during my six years there, we had three winding up owners and we got away with two of them. Well, two of them didn't happen because we we sold players. Um, I mean, my first year there, we sold Peter Swan, Andy Payton, we sold Lee Jenkinson. And over that six-year period, six-and-a-half-year period, we brought in something like four-and-a-half million pounds, and I spent 80,000. So, you know, it was... I I think that was probably the reason why they the board kept me there because we were keeping them alive by getting players in. You know, we, as you say, we brought in Dean Winders for nothing. We signed Le- Linton Brown for nothing, and they formed a good partnership. But that happened by accident because we had Steve Moran playing up front and Chris Hargreaves. And Chris Hargreaves broke his leg in pre-season, and then Steve Moran had a calf injury. So our two main strikers that we were hoping to start the season mm-hmm. with. They were out of it. They, they couldn't play. So Linton got straight into the team and I'd, I'd signed Dino as a midfield player. And I said, Dino, do you fancy playing up front? And he said, Terry, I'll play anywhere. And, you know, between them, they did, they did mm. brilliantly for us.
1: And, and did, did you think with people like Alan Fettis and Dean Windass, obviously they're quite young when, you, when you're first get them, how quickly do you, do you see them as, as being able to get right to the top? Or is that something that surprises you? Well,
2: particularly Dean Windass. He was, throughout my managerial career, he was technically the best player I dealt with because he was two or three moves mentally above everybody else. Yeah. In fact, the day we we brought him in for a trial, he had been he was playing for North Farrow, but he was working as a brickie. And we said to Dean, come in and have a few days training with us. After 20 minutes of the first training session, I said to my assistant, we need to sign him. Because he was just so comfortable with the rest of mm. experienced professionals i mean he'd been there as a youngster and was released uh, as a schoolboy, and had a i think he had a short spell at york yeah i
1: think he did yeah yeah uh,
2: and i think the the reason that people gave was he wasn't big enough well to me he was good enough so he was big enough yeah yeah and well we know what he's done you know what he did after that and he scored one of the best goals I've ever seen at Wickham. And Alan Fettis was the goalkeeper at the time. And Alan kicked the ball out of his hands. Dean was just inside our half. He chested the ball down before it hit the ground. He flicked it up with his right foot and turned in the same movement and volleyed it into the goal into the goal mm. at the other end from well 50 yards. Yeah.
1: No, I great. Think, player, I think you it? can
2: if you look on YouTube.
1: It, yeah, I think I've seen it before. Yeah, I mean, he, that, you know,
2: people don't realise how clever he was. Yeah,
1: because he moved to Aberdeen, didn't he? For about six hundred and fifty thousand, which is quite an obscure sort of move. You'd think more clubs in England would have been after him at that time. Was it? Was Aberdeen well, the, the highest bidder? Is that why he well, went went he, to Scotland? He
2: thought, and I kept him informed all the time when it when it became clear that well, it became clear that we were going to have to sell somebody because we were in, well we would have gone into administration, we were mm-hmm. a winding up order going. So Norwich City with Martin O'Neill as manager were looking to sign him but Robert Chase, the chairman of Norwich City blocked it, he, he, he didn't think that Dean was the right type of player for Norwich City. And I think Martin O'Neill ended up falling out with his chairman over that. So initially he was going to go to Norwich, and I'd kept him informed of everything. So he didn't go. He didn't end up going to Norwich. And then I got a phone call from Roy Aitken, who was the manager of Aberdeen, and he said, "Listen, we've agreed a deal with your board, and the deal was." Six hundred and fifty thousand, and i wasn't going to argue with that because that was up to the board then as to yeah. how much they wanted and dean said well what what do we do next i said well we're going to fly up from humberside airport up to aberdeen you're going to have a chat with roy Aitken and hopefully things will, will work out for you and the first thing he said to me when i said we'll, we'll fly from humberside airport he said do i need a passport <laughs> <laughs> and i said no but Martin Fisher who was the chairman at Hull at the time, he said, Terry, just make sure you do one thing. He said, make sure when you come back, you come back on your own and he stays there. Because right. they, they were desperate
1: for it. Yeah, that. yeah, they needed it. Yeah, You took a lot of stick from the Hull fans, I think. And it looked to me, sort of an outsider looking in, back through my research, it was a real... Toxic sort of environment, I imagine. And how did that affect you and your family? Because you, you know, you were there a long time, weren't you? I think six years yeah, you were there, and six tough years as well. It's not like there was, you know, any respite in that six years. No. How, how did that affect you and your family I, at the time?
2: I, I coped with it reasonably well, I think, but it did affect my family, and that's something you know that is the the other side of football that sometimes people don't understand and don't realise. Mm. But you know, they, they formed a supporters group called the Tigers two thousand and they got these stickers because they, they knew that myself and Martin Fisher, the chairman then, we were fairly when I say fairly close, we were on the same wavelength and I was doing what he asked me to do. So they extended my contract and because we weren't doing well on the field supporters couldn't understand why a manager could have his contract extended when the team wasn't successful well my contract was extended because we kept bringing money in and keeping mm. the club going because the Needler family who would finance the club for years and years and years they just pulled the plug and said that's it the checkbook's closed mm. if you're going to spend money you're going to have to
1: get it in by selling players and, and i guess it's hard to be successful when you've got not a pot to piss in <laughs>
2: do you know what I mean it's very very difficult and the, as I say the the thing regarding coping with the how can I describe it the feelings of the supporters I could understand that they weren't happy because you know they, they want their team to be successful yeah they're
1: frustrated aren't they they and, want their team and, to do well you know
2: I was not I was as unhappy that we weren't being successful but I also knew that apart from what we were doing by getting youngsters in from for nothing basically and then selling it was the only way we were going to keep
1: going in that was I, I think I'm right in saying as well that during that time at Hull I think Bradford were interested in taking you back Huddersfield Town your old club as well you had a great association with they wanted you as well but you remained at Boothbury Park despite all that that kind of difficult challenging environment that you found yourself in what, what what made you stay i
2: was fair with martin because
1: he'd been fair with me i didn't want to just walk out i knew
2: all along once david lloyd started to get involved in wanting to buy the club i knew then that my days were numbered but i wasn't going to walk away the two funnily enough the two um, i was interviewed for the sheffield wednesday job while i was at home also uh, interviewed for the west brom job and on both occasions, and I can't argue because it happened to me at Bradford where I was caretaker, at Sheffield Wednesday, Peter Eustace was appointed as caretaker manager and kept winning, so they gave Peter the job mm. and at West Brom, Brian Tolbert was appointed caretaker manager and they, he kept winning while they were while he was manager, so I couldn't argue about that, so on, on those two occasions where it looked as though I might leave Hull it didn't happen, and I knew, once, as I said, once David Lloyd got involved or his voice or his name was bandied around that he wanted to take over the club, I knew then it was just a matter of time. But I was under contract, so I wasn't going to just walk away with it.
1: Right, on, on to York City now, Terry. So you, you joined the club in February 2000. They were in danger of a, a double-dip relegation. That would have meant they were going out of the Football League. You'd obviously played at Boone Crescent before because you played at that many grounds, <laughs> as we established earlier. How much did you know about, about York City? Well, I knew that at that time it was a very, very well run club. Yeah. And I'd known
2: Barry Swallow, who was one of the directors, because he played when I was a youngster at Bradford City, he was in the first oh, team at Bradford City. And it was through Barry and Douglas Craig that. The link was, he'd known me from the past and obviously he'd seen what I'd done at uh, Bradford and at Rochdale. Because, go, again, going back to Rochdale, we got, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, we got to the fifth round of the FA Cup for the first time in the club's history. Mm. So, you know, those things sometimes people remember. So it was it was basically Barry Swallow who said to Douglas Kirk, have a, have a chat with Terry. Mm. Uh, and it was while I was youth team coach at, Bradford, at Huddersfield Town, first of all with Peter Jackson uh, and Terry O'Rourke was with Peter and then Peter left or Peter got sacked and Steve Bruce took over so I worked with Steve for a year but then
1: York asked me if I wanted to go there and Steve didn't stand in my way at all so no. that was good. So you had sort of three years out had not you so obviously the whole city thing ended. The whole city ended in
2: 97
1: and I was I was with Huddersfield Town then from 97 to... Yeah, years. were you itching to get back into that? Did you want another crack? Oh yeah. yeah Oh yeah,
2: definitely
1: Yeah. I mean your signings were, were, were crucial and, and interesting really looking back you know, you had the experience of Alan Fettis and, and Peter Swan but you also had youngsters like Mark, Mark Bauer and Peter Hawkins as well, you clearly felt that fresh blood was needed in order to keep York City up, even tactically you put Mark Satori up front as well I think and yeah. he scored a, a, a goal at them in a 1-0 win so did you think how quickly did you sort of realise that you needed new players to come in? Oh well, it was pretty clear um, that we needed new players but again
2: it's not that easy you can't just say oh well I like him and we'll sign him it was hard work initially but as I say the, the club was well run at that time and it was only later where things obviously changed but again going back to I think one of my first signings when I ended up going to York was Graham Potter. Yes. Because I, I didn't realise that I, I was looking when Graham got sacked at Chelsea, I was looking at his his career, and he played 135 games for York, which is virtually three seasons mm. non-stop. And I signed in just after I'd gone to the club, and he left at the same time I left. Right. Yeah. So he was there for the full three years, and I was there. Yeah,
1: that last twelve games of that season, I think the club only conceded five goals. You won five, drew six, and lost only one. Uh, you must have been really happy with the way that you kind of managed to reshape that team with your new signings, and and they and they gel pretty quickly, didn't they? Because you brought quite a few players in, and sometimes that that can be counterproductive, can it? If, yes. if people yeah. you know don't know their jobs.
2: Yeah, but again, what people, what a lot of people don't realise, obviously the the hardcore York City supporters will realise what was going on behind the scenes because Douglas Craig and the directors decided that they wanted to sell Booth and Crescent. Mm. Then John Batchelor took over, which was a completely different <laughs> way of... We'll come on to him. <laughs> <laughs> and then, obviously, the Supporters Trust took over. So things going off, on, off the field were as much
1: as difficult to deal with as they were on the field. Yeah. In between the sort of that first season that you took over it, before your sort of first full season we, we played a friendly against Manchester United. What was that like sort of pitting your wits against Alex Ferguson and did you speak to him sort of after the game? Oh yeah. And he, he was a gentleman afterwards but that game
2: came about because of a deal that was done with the goalkeeper. Yeah, Nick Culkin. Yeah. meant to men United and part of the deal was that Manu would bring the first team for a pre-season game and to be fair to Alex he brought every one of his first team squad to play which was fantastic and some of our players couldn't believe it they were the
1: sort of things that he did yeah how, how did you prepare for a game because obviously it's a friendly so it's not nothing really riding on it but at the same time you probably don't want to well, be embarrassed we, we and...
2: prepared for it more or
1: less from a defensive point of view because we, were, we weren't going to
2: get the ball very often yeah. But we would have some of their players telling our players, if they made a mistake, don't do this next time, don't do that next. So what we wanted, we got out of it from our own point of view, but Man United
1: players helped us as well. Yeah. You know. And I remember it was an absolutely red hot day as well, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. So imagine like, you know, you, you you know you're probably gonna be chasing around... You're chasing shadows yeah. that ultimately against yeah. a team of that, that kind of ilk. But to do it on a red-hot day as well must yeah. have been a really and, energy sapping.
2: And, and the other thing was that we'd changed the system from what some of the players have been used to when, when I first went there because I, more, more often than not, in my time as a manager, played with three centre-backs. And that had never happened before at York. So yeah. it was a case of getting used to that as well. So there was all, there were always things where you were going to get benefit from it from the opposition because mm. sometimes you play against two strikers, sometimes you play against three strikers. And it, it was a good way of our players adapting to what was happening on the field during that 90 minutes, not saying, well, we'll do this next week or we'll do this next week. To be able to change the systems during a
1: game was a good experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because the previous season had ended so well, there was quite high expectations, I think, going into the following one, your first full season. They were definitely raised. But the club came 17th, I think you used 38 players across the whole campaign. Did you just struggle to sort of find the right formula in that first full season, do you think?
2: I don't think it was the formula because you know we felt with the players that we had, particularly like Graham Potter, who could play as a left wing back. We had Darren Evans who was good at a right wing back. Yeah, so he's a good player. When you've got two players like that, then you want to get the best out of them. And I always felt that right from the start of the game, that was the best way for us to go. Yeah. Sometimes you had to change, but if we did change, I always had as much as often or as often as possible. I would have one of my centre-backs who was left-footed, who could slot into moving out to the left-back. Graham Potter then could move forward to left-side midfield if he wanted to play 4-4-2. And Darren could do the same. Darren Edmondson and could do the same on the right-hand side. So we had enough flexibility there. But... Like a lot of people say to you at the end of the day, it's scoring goals that wins your football matches. Yeah, it? and
1: you're a bit unlucky with that actually, because I was looking back, you know, Peter Duffield was one of your main signings that summer. He scored three in the first six games of the season and then broke his leg. Yeah. And in fact, I think he broke his leg three times in his York City career, and, yeah. and Peter Swan as well, he would really marshalled that defence for you at the back end of the previous season he had to retire quite early on in that season that sort of thing football is as much about preparation as well, but there's a lot of luck involved as well isn't there I well, you think that was a bit of a sliding doors moment if those players had have stayed fit very much so yes
2: and I mean the other people that we had coming in at that time we got we signed John Parkin, didn't we from yeah. Barnsley who again could play either centre half or centre forward so I always had it in my mind I needed as many flexible players as possible just yeah. to cope with whatever's thrown at you. Yeah. But we just never got it
1: truly right all at the same time. And you mentioned about scoring goals because I, I look back at the the first season you were there well, the sort of part, part of the season you were there Barry Conlon was the top goal scorer as, club had spent a lot of money for him but but you kind of I think he played the first couple of games of season when he was out was he just not your sort of player because he was capable of, of it, yeah. doing good things on, he, on his day wasn't
2: he he had a lot of ability but I wouldn't say he was as reliable as I would have liked and as you say as you said earlier we even ended up playing Mark Satori up front or at centre mm. half but Funnily enough, Mark Satori did that while I was there, Peter Swan did that while I was there, and so did John Parkin. You know, so we did get players in who could adapt to playing in different positions, but we never really got a settled team where we knew that we were going to go and be successful.
1: Yeah, and in February, we, I think we dropped to the bottom of the table, 60 feet in seven. I think we lost 3-0 at home to Exeter, who, was, who were also down there at the time there was some fan protests I think I remember at the time as well did, did you fear the sack I, I think as supporters we all felt you know that, that was that was in February so it was pretty much a year since you'd come in we are rock bottom of the table obviously fearing being out of football league did, did you fear the sack and second to that what, what was your relationship like with Douglas Craig my relationship with Douglas was excellent yeah and I didn't fear it at all I
2: mean my relationship with Douglas was as good as it was with Martin Fisher Hull and I knew that given a a steady wind we would be i think it was probably the following season where we just missed out in the playoffs didn't we yeah but i knew that we weren't far away unfortunately again money was tight and we we ended up having to just get
1: players in on loan rather than signing them on permanent Mm. transfers we ended the season again really really well, I mean, I just mentioned there the Exeter result the following Tuesday, we won 1-0 at Rochdale and it started a really good run. I mean, there was only two defeats in the last 16 games and you'd signed uh, Lee Nogan and Chris Brass. They both played a key part in that kind of revival. How, how did you source players? Because it, it, managers now, some of them just focus on putting the players out on the pitch on a Saturday, don't they? Whereas back then, in, in your sort of era, I think managers did pretty much everything didn't then? were you going out to watch these players how how, how did you sort of scout people well, like Chris Brass and Lee Nogan well, I knew people like
2: Chris Brass who, would play, who had played at a higher level anyway so I knew people like him it was a case of I wanted experience Lee Nogan had had a lot of experience Chris Brass had, had a lot of experience and it was just getting them to fit in in the right space basically mm. So it was interesting trying to get rid of the sort of negativity from supporters, I mean it was nowhere near as bad as it had been at home, so and once I've gone through what I've gone through at home I yeah. can
1: cope with anything right. basically. So that's probably why you didn't feel a the sack then because yeah. you sort of thought well you know I've been through this situation before. I mean the following season we were higher up the table I think you'd signed Michael Proctor on loan from Sunderland who was, was a good goal scorer for yeah. us I think I think you kind of were lacking that with Peter Duffield being injured also got to the third round of the FA Cup lost to Fulham but then obviously most significant was John Batchelor taking over from Douglas Craig which was obviously a big game changer in terms of where the club were going what was
2: your first impressions of john difficult to say because bored with regards to douglas craig and barry swallow had worked on the on the same principles all the way through but they'd made it clear for probably 18 months or so while i was there that they wanted to sell right sell the club basically they, they couldn't do much more i mean i had no idea who john bachelor was i don't think anybody had until he had until he turned up mm. But the time he was in charge, again, it was more about, from the, from the media's point of view particularly, it was more about what was going on off the field rather than on the field. So in some respects, there was less pressure on because I don't think we agreed with a lot of the things that he wanted to do and he eventually did do. When I say we, I'm talking about my staff and the players. Mm. But it all... Well, it all ended up in tears,
1: basically, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, as as an old school Yorkshireman like yourself, <laughs> when, when he's sort of coming up to you saying, I'm thinking of changing the name from York City Football Club to York City Soccer Club, how, how are you reacting to that? Because obviously you're an employee as well, aren't you? And you kind of, you're probably conscious that you want to keep your job and stuff like that. Are you having to kind of say... Oh, fair enough.
2: No, I didn't say fair enough because I was strong enough to stand up for myself and say, look, this is the way we want to do it. But there were a couple of things that happened where I just thought to myself, this is never going to work. And through his motor racing contacts and the work he'd done there, he at some stage met Luther Blissett and wanted to bring in Luther Blissett as a so-called director of football. Now, why, I don't know. Well, I do know why. He wanted eventually to make him the manager mm. because he had a name. And he thought, the bigger the name, the more people we get coming to watch us. Not a case of, well, we've got to win football matches and mm. gets people coming to watch us. So he invited, we were up in pre-season up in Scotland and he invited Luther to come up, which I know, I couldn't say, no, you're not. He, he, was, yeah. he was the man in charge, so he brought Luther up. And Luther just... Myself and Adi Shaw and Neil Thompson we were close together the physio, Jeff Miller. And in the days, in those days of five or six days we were up there in Scotland, he just kept himself to himself did Luther, Just never said a word to Mm -hmm. anybody. And I thought, this isn't right. Now, whether it was a case of he was just doing a job for the chairman and sussing out how we worked, I don't know. But eventually it got to a stage where I said, well, listen, it's either Luther Blissett or me. Right. To be fair to him, he said,
1: right, I won't bring Luther in. Right. Okay. So at least you yeah you listened to me in that respect. I mean that that following season, which ended up being your final season, uh, was your best. I mean, we, we got off to a great start. You won manager of the month for August, and um, but this was against a backdrop of just utter chaos, really. And I, I was going to mention about Luther but you've already covered that. But but players like Nicolas Mazzina, the Argentine, and and Ruggiero, the Brazilian striker, I presume these weren't your choice of player. And also, were you Were you kind of told to play them? Because obviously John Batchelor's idea was to have someone like Rogerio market him as this Brazilian striker, sell some Brazil shirts in a club shop. Were you feeling pressured to play him? Were you told to play him?
2: I wasn't told to play him. And what we had to try and do was make them better players while they were with us. Otherwise it would have been just chaos. But no, I mean, that that was the sort of start of the end of the Bachelor era because as everybody knows now the supporters obviously didn't like it and then the supporters trust took over didn't
1: they yeah and and when it sort of just before we get to the supporters trust when it sort of hit the fan uh, as it were sort of financially did did you sort of think oh here we go again (laughs) given that you've been at Hull or were you sort of thinking actual facts I'm really well equipped to deal with this more of the latter
2: yeah because I always felt that in one way we would get through it all and we would come out the other end better for it Yeah, but in a lot of respects there were certain things happening that I got no control over
1: yeah, and, and that ITV digital collapse as well, didn't it? Which I think John Batchelor had banked on yes. quite a lot of that money. I mean, it's quite incredible, really, that the, the club were in the, in the hunt for the playoffs right up until the last few games of the season. How were you able to keep players motivated? Because a lot of them weren't getting, well, I don't think many people were getting paid. I presume you weren't too. How did you manage to keep people motivated to keep playing, but also win games of football?
2: we always felt that we were a close enough group of people to get by what, what any you know adversity came across. And we'd, we'd been through quite a bit. And obviously me personally, had been through it at Hull City. So it wasn't as bad as maybe people feared, but it, it was very difficult with regards to communicating with the Supporters Trust because I was a football person they were they were just I'm not being derogatory here but they were just supporters Mm. who wanted their team to do well and they happened to be able well not be able they happened to end up running the club in that respect but as you say we had a we had a reasonable season
1: that season and then do do you think sorry to cut in there do you think that had that chaos not been going on we would have maybe made the playoffs and you know, do you think that maybe everything just caught up with everyone towards the end of the season? Because it was a real drop off in that last sort of month, wasn't it? We yeah. just couldn't buy a result basically. Yeah.
2: yeah. And again, you may not remember, but two weeks before the end of that season, I was awarded the Princess Trust Award for the manager who had got the best out of what
1: he what he'd got and then three weeks later I'm sacked. Yeah, I was, I was just going to come on to that. There, the club was taken over again this time by the Sports Trust, meaning you'd had free owners in three seasons. You were placed on gardening leave, but effectively lost your job. The, the club said it was... Well, I, I
2: was. I was put on gardening leave because I still had twelve months of my contract to run. Right, and they couldn't afford to pay me up, which should have been the case. But again, people, maybe some people don't realise this, but. I said to the board or to the Supporters Trust, I said, listen, I've got a year in my contract still to run. You're saying you can't afford to pay me up. I'll keep coming in. Chris Brass was appointed initially caretaker manager and then given the job as player manager. I said, I'm prepared to come in on a weekly basis to help Chris, just to mentor him. And, you know... At least then you you maybe going to get something back mm. for the money that you you pay me. Um, they the the just said basically we don't want you anywhere near the club.
1: You must have been really hurt and disappointed by that, I guess, after very much you know, so, working yeah. a, in a real difficult backdrop yeah. for three seasons and and then. Like you say, the club had come to the end of that cycle, really, with John Batchelor going. I've interviewed Sophie before, and she said that you didn't really buy into the trust model. Is that is that a fair observation? Do you think? Well, I've never been used to
2: a trust model before, so yeah. it was it was it was going to be you know completely new to me. I mean, I have spoken to the McGill's obviously since i since I was SAP. and I think if they're true to what they say, I saw them. Work, I saw Jason at a game one day. And he said, Terry, it was a mistake we made in getting rid of you now. It, you know, it could be easy for somebody to say that when mm. it's all happened. But yeah. at least, if he, was, if he was true, at least he had the, the guts to say, well, you know, we made a mistake.
1: Yeah. They, they, they said it was a necessity financially. You had a company car, etc. Would you Would you have taken a pay cut to stay at York City? Or was that, were you on a contract that was, you thought you were worth? Well, it was never put to me anyway. It was a case no. of... Yeah. yeah, you're not needed. What yeah. What did you think when Chris Brass was appointed manager? Because he was only 27 at the time, and you've been a manager who's obviously been there and done it, as it were, for, for a number of years. And I'm sure you've, along the way, you've made mistakes and you learned from and stuff like that. To, to be a manager at 27 was a massive ask, wasn't it? What What well, did you think? And did Did you speak to Chris when he was a I spoke to him.
2: Yes. Without you know trying to say I, I, I tried to give him the right sort of advice. The first thing I said to him was, do you think you're ready for this? And I didn't think he was. Mm. But at the end of the day, he would have to make his own decision. I mean, he was under contract as a player. I don't know whether they gave him any more money for the manager's role or whether they just ended up paying him what he was getting as his playing contract. But listen,
1: it's hard enough playing at 27, 28, never mind playing and managing. I mean, he got off to a great start, didn't he? I think they won four out of four to start with. And then really struggled after Christmas. Yeah. And when you're sort of still on gardening leave and you've seen that going on, I think you tried to reach out, didn't you, to the club to come back and help? Oh, yeah. So you obviously still cared about York City to, to a certain extent as well and didn't want them... You know, they were falling out of the football league, weren't they? That must have been difficult to kind of see from afar. And, and again, we, that off just wasn't taken up. No. There was no negotiations I, or anything.
2: Well, they were paying me still. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I, I felt... I, well, I wasn't happy that they you know, decided to get rid of me in that respect, but I, just, I didn't understand why they, they, knew, they knew me well enough as an individual, I didn't understand
1: why they didn't accept my help in that respect. Yeah. I wonder whether they were sort of hoping you'd get another managerial job and then they wouldn't <laughs> have to pay that. Were you close to... Did you apply for any other jobs or were you just waiting it out for the, for the year? I
2: deliberately didn't apply for any of the jobs because I wasn't happy with the way that they'd done yeah. the matter.
1: In principle, basically.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm a man of principles in that respect. So, uh, no, I wasn't going to uh, look for anything else during that time. In fact, I'd just joined a golf club at that time and I was playing off a handicap of 21 at the start of that 12-month period. And by the time my contract ran out and they'd finished paying me, I'd been playing golf twice a week and I got down to a handicap of 13. So
1: I did get some benefits out of... And did you do any not, gardening in that year? Or? Not,
2: no, 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 no.
1: <laughs> do, do you think, honestly, do you think you would have kept them up? If they, even though, because the budget was obviously clearly cut, and you know, Chris Brass, you know, really young manager inexperienced but also didn't have a lot of money to play and I think the McGills would accept that as well at that, that moment in time it was pure cost cutting where they could to, to make sure the club were financially on, a, on an even keel but do you think even with that circumstance do you think you would have been able to keep them in the football league definitely when researching it, it's sort of clear that some fans sort of saw you as a bit bit of a dour sort of manager if I can say <laughs> that but but characters were clearly important to you weren't I look, look through your career you know we mentioned Dean Windass earlier Peter Swan was a real character wasn't he, young John Parkin as well what was he like to manage interesting
2: (laughs) it was funny because there were a group of them who came There's Tom Cowan John Parkin trying to think they all came in the same car and I knew that what they would do when they weren't at the football club a lot of the time yeah but John got a habit of going to the greasy cafe on the way to training every morning for a breakfast and it was just around that time in football where people used to start taking everybody's weights etc and uh, he's just sky high but he would make up for it by what he was doing on the field so you know you you had to deal with the players in different ways and you knew that sometimes they were doing things that they shouldn't be doing but you had to be careful how you dealt with them in that respect but i think it's a two-way thing, and I think I ended up having respect for the players, and I hope that they have respect for me.
1: Yeah, and I think the players that I've interviewed in the past that have played for you certainly, I would class as as being really respectful towards you. And another player you mentioned, you mentioned this earlier, Graham Potter. Did did you see his managerial potential in that hundred odd games that you mentioned that he played played for us? And do you have any contact with him or or had since he's become a manager?
2: No, no, um, I didn't see it coming, but. A lot of good managers, you don't see that coming if you've been playing with them on a regular basis. But the one thing about Graham was he was very studious. He would listen to everything you'd said. And again, it was interesting because he was one of a first signings to play as a wing back because as i say i always played with three center backs and then wing backs he was clever enough for us when we had to change things during the game to go to a 4-4-2 or 4-3-3 he was the one who would spot it and say we need to do this and if you think about his managerial career particularly at brighton he played more often than not with three center backs and he
1: tried it at chelsea so it's your influence well <laughs> I've told other people it was yeah. that influence and of and other players that played for you certainly at York City Mark Bauer Darren Edmondson uh, Christian Fox you know all, all went into management didn't they does that make you quite proud and also Alan Fetters mentioned earlier co- into coaching as yeah. well at, at, now at Middlesbrough yes. that must make you quite proud to know that you must have had some influence on those players going forward
2: well I think you, you look at the way that they handle themselves as players and if they're sensible enough and they've got enough thought about things then they can have careers in coaching and managing when you look at a player it's not just a case of or if you want to sign a player it's not just a case of is he good with his right foot is he good with his left foot is he a good header of the ball what sort of character is it yeah so that that was important to you was it yeah and i know you can say well dean windus's character was different to graham potter's but when you're dealing with a group of players 15 or 16 players you're going to get that difference of character yeah, and it's the ones who blend
1: together are the ones who are going to be successful. Yeah. How how do you look back on your time at York now? Do you, do you have any regrets of of your time at York, no, or were you quite the, happy with your body of work that you, that you no, did the, there? The, the only regret I had was that they got rid of me. Yeah, you'd quite like to have stayed. Oh yes. long term at York. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think you've been to the new stadium, haven't you? What what, what do you make of of York City now? And I, I looked I looked as well. So York City, you've got a new stadium. Got really good owners now, Hull City, similar new stadium good owners. Do you do you ever look back and sort of think, God, I'm a bit envious actually that I didn't have those resources when I was in charge? Well, if
2: you think, particularly going back to York City, that new stadium, and I know it's it's at um Monch Cross. Yes, that was on the cards when I was managing that. Mm. Because when they sold the club to Persimmon, when they sold the ground to Persimmon, that was gonna be the new stadium then. But and that was 2003, so that's 20 years ago. Yeah. It's taken 20 years, well, 19 years now, to get to where they, they should have been. And what, what that, that, that was the disappointing thing, because everything just kept dragging on and dragging on. Yeah. And if the owners keep changing, then that's not going to help, is it? No. And what, what did you make of a new stadium when you went to York? What? Brilliant. And I spoke to the supporters in the hospitality area before the game and then they asked me to go outside to draw the raffle on the picture half-time and i'm thinking i don't know whether this is a good thing or not <laughs> you know i might get some stick here and to be fair the supporters were brilliant with me and i had to walk off the pitch to the far side of the pitch and walk all the way around before the second half started to get back to my seat in mm. the stand and the number of people who came up and shook my
1: hands was it yeah. was nice
2: yeah, you know,
1: nice I, re- I really, you know, really took to that. Yeah. I, I, I wonder whether, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to do the podcast, was to, to kind of maybe not change people's opinions, but, but give, give you a side to kind of that, that era really of, of, of what was happening at the club because maybe over time people look and look at things a little bit differently. And like we said there earlier about your time at Bradford City as well, that now they're looking at the most successful managers maybe the owners at that time didn't appreciate how good a job you actually did. Yeah, but well, at the end of the day, you're only going to remember if you won things. Very true. But, but Terry, it's, it's been great. Like I said, thank you so much for inviting me to your house. First one I've done on location, I think, these interviews. It's been great to hear about your career. So many great stories about your playing career as, as well as your managerial career. So thanks for giving me your time.
2: You're welcome and good luck to York City for the rest of the season.
1: Massive thank you then to Terry Dolan there for giving up his time and also for uh, actually allowing me to come to his house in North Ferriby to record that. Makes a cracking cup of tea. Yeah, it was great to spend time with Terry and obviously I think very differently about him now to what I did when, when I was a youngster on the terraces, maybe saying Dolan out without knowing the full things that were going on in the background at the club. But yeah, it was great to just get his opinions on, on that time period and you know it was, it was a tough time period. You know, Three owners in three years, can't have been easy and um, it was really nice to hear Terry's stories on that and Thoughts on that, and also there's things about his playing career really interesting there. And I hope, hope people um, enjoyed it as much as I did recording it. Thanks again for listening and, and kind of um, people leaving comments that, like they have done in, in the kind of droves really of the last three episodes. The last one being Neil Tolson coming out, as I, I said, a really great response, and I'm glad people really engaged with that. As ever, we are a charity. So if you are enjoying these podcasts, you've enjoyed the first three episodes, first four episodes now, and you do want to donate, is justgiving.com forward slash York Hospital Radio. You can also text 5HB to 70450. so coming up next week we're moving on towards the 10s the which is uh, Michael Rankin covering that decade really great player for York I, I love Michael Rankin at York City and obviously had three spells at the club really enjoyed his time with us and, and I'm, I'm hoping people will enjoy that episode as much as they have done the other ones so that that should be out uh, next week next Sunday I'm trying to release them every week now if I can we'll also try to release the sort of footage from the live event that we did Hacksview Sports Bar with um, Ian Dunn and David McGurk as well at the end of this series so anyone who missed out on that I quite a lot of listeners of a podcast live outside of york so it's difficult to get to those sort of things but you know hopefully you guys won't miss out and we can put that together for you as well so yeah thanks again for listening and uh see you next time